Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for April. Coming up, we discuss John Carter and The Hunger Games at the cinema, plus Cleopatra and Hugo on Blu-ray. And joining me for the Movies Podcast is Simon Mark and Chris, good evening guys. Good evening. Hello. Evening Phil. And uh, we're going to kick off straight away with um, what's being described, Chris, as the biggest flop in movie history. Uh, <laughs> John Carter, is that the case? Apparently so, yes Phil. Um, shamefully, this is, this is a film I, I was so, so looking forward to and, uh, and in fact enjoyed quite immensely, um, as my review on the site will testify. But of course, despite my shamelessly plugging this movie, uh, it's gone on to become an absolute travesty at the box office. Utterly trounced, uh, made a monumental loss for Disney, who pumped something ridiculous um, into it, something like 260 million or whatever. And uh, it's made a worldwide loss. It's been ripped apart critically as well. As well. You know, and I gave it like a, a very charitable seven or eight out of 10. I thought it was terrific. Um, yeah. It's it's just a basic slice of you know sci-fi hokum. It's fantasy set on Mars, or it's called Barsoom in this particular story. Um, but basically, Disney, who've been past this project, it's been passed from pillar to post over the decades. In fact, the story is written in 1912 by Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan boy himself, and uh, a lot of people have tried to get it off the ground. It's largely hailed as the uh, the great grandfather of most sci-fi. Without this, you wouldn't have had Star Wars, you wouldn't have had Avatar, you wouldn't have had Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, you wouldn't have had anything, basically. It's also the, the birth of the, the haunted hero, the guy who's lost everything and um, comes, comes back to the fore in a different sort of environment and finds himself again. You know, and without that, you wouldn't have had Lethal Weapon or that sort of, sort of caper, or even First Blood. So, you know, vastly influential. Um, but you know, all of this influence seems to have gone for naught when uh, nobody bothered to go and see it. And those that did, critically wise, um, seem to have just lambasted the movie. Disney must share a huge part of the blame for this because their marketing for the movie was dreadful, truly shockingly dreadful. Um, not only did it not get advertised properly until about a week before its release date, um, the first two teasers were a, an abstract, random collage of images it made no sense they, they called the film john carter uh, presumably because anything with mars in the title has been a disaster for them but mars needs mums flopped as well so they ditched the mars part because it's based on the book princess of mars and it's a hokey a cliffhanger serial type you know pulp sort of story so you could easily have had the title john carter and the princess of mars anyone who saw that title would have known exactly oh well the hero is John Carter, and it's going to be set on Mars. It's got a princess in it, and it's going to be some sort of fantasy sci-fi thing. There you go, in a nutshell. But no, we'll call it John Carter. No one's got a clue what that is, unless you really are a geek, a nerd, and a you know a massive devotee of of the genre like myself. 
you would not have known what this was about. So you, you can't blame the, the mass cinema, cinema going public for kind of vetoing this. But there's another crushing thing as well about the, uh, the marketing for this film and the, the selling of it, to, the distribution of it, I should say. Um, it was done in 3D, a post-conversion. Not necessarily an all-that-bad conversion. I've seen both the 3D and the 2D. And the 3D wasn't too bad, wasn't too shabby, but the 2D was definitely the way to go. But a lot of people now have the understanding that post-converted 3D movies are a bit of a waste, they're a bit of a letdown. So by and large, even Joe Public is actually going out and seeking the 2D version. Now, I was lucky enough to go to a cinema where they had both playing, uh, and I saw both the same day, in fact, um, and loved it you know, both times over. But in America particularly, you had to travel hundreds of miles before you found a cinema where it was shown in 2D because they just literally snowballed it and, you know, blanket carpeted the, um, you know, all, the whole cinema chains with, and the multiplexes with the 3D version, and you just couldn't find a 2D for love and the money. So people who were thinking, ah, post-conversion, I'm going to give that a miss. <laughs> Obviously, there was no money going over the counter there, was there? So you've already got a massive loss there. Um, Disney completely, utterly dropped the ball. They seemed to have disassociated themselves from it. Uh, you had a leading man in, oh, what's his name? <laughs> See, this is it. I've actually forgotten the guy's name now. Anyway, that's the point. You did, no one knew who he was. He was Gambit in Wolverine Origins, and he's got up-and-coming movies like Battleship, you know, but not exactly a household name. And with a commodity which is not exactly widely known by the mass cinema going public, that's a bit of a, you know... Bit of a mistake, bit of a gamble. Um, we well, see, Chris, that, that seems to be the big problem with this film, which you've already mentioned, is the fact that uh, the trailers. I think I saw one trailer for it, or two, maybe two trailers for it on the TV, and it meant absolutely nothing to me. And the name John Carter. Well, what's all that all about? Because uh, because if you don't know anything about the the past of this character, and I'm guessing that there's a good proportion, probably 99 percent of the public. I've never heard of John Carter uh, and exactly. the, whole, the whole thing. So uh, it, is it the PR side that's let this film down or, or was it a pretty awful film? Uh, the PR side let the film down something chronic. Uh, the film actually is, is very, very enjoyable. And despite the, the relatively few reviews you may have seen about this um, from supposedly renowned critics, uh, you know, they've... <laughs> how can you love Star Wars and, and, and yet completely pour scorn upon this? Um, if anything, this is possibly better acted than many Star Wars movies. Uh, the story, it, it's a hodgepodge of sci-fi and fantasy. It is an American Civil War veteran who is somehow or other whisked off to Mars um, and he ends up fighting what is another civil war between the various races that live there. Now, Mars is also now a very much fertile planet. Okay, actually, it is in the books. It isn't in the movie. It's more of a desert. But if the films were allowed to progress, which looks unlikely now, certainly for Disney anyway, you would have found more jungle and jungly, lush environments to have adventures in. So it was based on the science that Edgar Rice Burroughs knew of the planet back in 1912, which wasn't a great deal. They thought they had canals and water and possibly even life. So it was based on his kind of um, imagination of what this planet would be. But the story itself, you know, you, the problem is the people who have seen it think, well, I've seen all that before. I've seen Star Wars, I've seen, um, you know, Flash Gordon, I've seen umpteen of these, you know, fantasy epics. And the big bone of contention was that 
most of this film looked like the Geonosian arena sequences from Attack of the Clones. Yeah, sadly, it does. But looks a hell of a lot better than the Attack of the Clones Geonosian arena. Um, there's action plenty. There's a lot of characters in it. There's a lot of exposition and waffle. But the effects are fantastic. The integration of the CG characters is supreme. Um, and it's got a heart and soul to it. A lot of people just choose to ignore that and have just, you know, as I say, poured scorn over it. Almost like before the film came out, the, the vultures were already circling because people had heard, you know, bad things about the productions, had problems, Disney's and marketing this. And if, like myself, you frequent a lot of these forums, so these are people writing on these forums who, are, who know the genre, who know the movies inside out and have a bit of a vested interest. Their enthusiasm for these things is, is greater than the most of the cinema going public but they were just lying in wait to destroy this movie and that's what I've, I've never really encountered that before the amount of vitriol that poor John Carter you know seemed to you know incur was just preposterous but again PR wise dropped the ball bad advertising gave up on it seemingly and uh, an interesting thing I did read though because director Andrew Stanton was the guy behind Wally and uh, Finding Nemo a Pixar you know luminary and it's his first proper live action movie although a hell of a lot of it's CG as well um, now I, I was defending this guy but I've since heard in a well, I thought it was reported in Variety a big you know um, trade tome in the States that he was kind of very rude and unapproachable when it came to, to um, Disney's PR woman who wanted, demanded, you know, we need footage for teaser trailers at the start of the year because no one notices it's coming, so we need to get something out there. And he was too, apparently he was too busy to hand anything over, so she asked him again day after day, and in the end she was reduced to tears. Now, again, this is, you know, this is written down, this is gossip, but in variety you tend to believe these things. And uh, she left the place in tears, and reluctantly, he cobbled together some, you know, some footage and just threw it out there. And that would account for the, uh, the rather um, cack-handed teaser trailers that we saw. Only at the end, you know, just before the film was released, did we get a proper you know, um, cinematic trailer and a couple of you know, TV spots and the posters all appeared everywhere. But by that stage, it was too late yeah, to save too- a movie, which is just great good fun. Yeah, it's too late by then, isn't it? I mean, Mark, um, uh, are, are you like myself? Did you missed the whole build-up for this movie, and I've got to say, Chris has sold the movie quite well there. I'm, I'm actually uh, now looking forward to maybe picking this up on disc and making my own mind up, but in terms of how it's gone before it went to the cinema, did you even know it existed? Uh, I had absolutely no idea about this one. I simply saw the trailers like a lot of people when it seemed to already be out. The title struck me as, as mundane. I, I wasn't fully sure what to make of the the juxtaposition of the imagery this this sci-fi fantasy and then the title just booms out at you and it just seems so mundane I I honestly thought it might be a bit tongue-in-cheek that it might have been some kind of grand spoof or something Um, but had I known that it was you know it had these pulp roots that it was more of a, a, a romper kind of adventure of a film I would have been interested in it from day one, but it just seems such an odd idea. Perhaps they thought that if they if they included the on Mars part, would it confuse people? Would they go in expecting what we would now consider a representation of Mars to be, i.e., sci-fi um, that wasn't around when it, the the book was written? 
but it does just seem like um like the knives were out for this one from day one as soon as it it hit the message boards uh, particularly when people see the size of budgets it seems to be that the reaction against the film no matter what someone can pick on is almost directly correlated in ratio to how big the budget is as if uh Indian mainstream cinema can't coexist so I think people were ready to bash this one right from the off and it, and it needed to build a bit of momentum with that with that title yeah again it's it's one of those titles Simon that, that doesn't kind of tell you anything about what what you're about to see in a movie uh, like Mark's touched on there you know um, social networking sites forums Twitter so on um, if they get on the back of it and <laughs> And they're not happy as a crowd. Uh, you seem to struggle. And then Chris also mentioned the fact that it was a, a 3D conversion. Do you think that that was maybe an issue as well? Yeah, the nail on the head there. I mean, we've been talking about the, the poor trailer advertising for this film. Well, I mean, you've got the World Wide Web. Surely, you know, the, the, their advertising detectives can just go out there and start having Facebook pages, putting on Twitter, going into these, um, our own film forum and saying, have you heard about this film? I mean, all it takes is something just to get to generate a little bit of interest in it. And once you get an interest in it, then things start to happen. I'd never heard of John Carter. The only, the only time I saw it advertised was on the side of a bus. With John Carter with a sort of a, I don't know, a mountainous red terrain. That, that, and I thought, oh, I've no idea on that. I didn't, didn't even consider it. The only time I really knew about it was, was proofreading Chris's review. <laughs> and that made me want to go and see it, you know. So it just shows you what was needed to get you to go and see it. And by that time, obviously, it had gone. You know, I me. had no chance. That's what they needed. <laughs> me. Me. <laughs> Someone just to champion it or just to say, look, it's not as bad as it as, as everyone else is made out you know just make up your own mind which is you know what we try and get across in all of our reviews make up your own mind because you know we can't tell you to go and see these things and and disney just dropped the ball so badly i mean it's it's easy for us to, to, to sit here and say well advertising all we got to do is just do a little bit here do a little bit here, do a little bit there these guys are paid how many millions of pounds to advertise these films the budget on just the budget alone was what 50 million or something where the hell where <laughs> where was that money spent you know it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever so yeah i mean obviously the, the advertising when you look at the budgets and and so on you look at what they could have done um to get the word out there to it, it just seems like it's been a uh, really poorly handled from a PR perspective, uh, Chris. So it just shows you, you know, if if you don't take the time, you don't take the care over your promotion and getting your, your message out there as to what the movie's about, um, it doesn't take long for internet landing and everybody else to turn on you. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you've, you've got word of mouth as well. When a film's, you know, you can have a nice small indie movie, but which doesn't get a lot of advertising, doesn't get a lot of promotion stuff, but people go and see it or people hear about it on the websites and that and uh, where the mouth gets around, and all of a sudden you've got a bit of a sleeper hit on your hands. But as you quite rightly say, you know, the, the bigger the movie is, if you don't handle it right at that stage, um, and you know, the knives are out, aren't they? You're going to be cut to ribbons. Your chances are you could be cut to ribbons, and, and you have a travesty of the size of John Carter on your hands, um, which, you know, you know, I don't worry personally about um, box office takings. Uh, you should do, because movie making is a business, and Without the money going over the counter, you're not going to have the movies you want to see in some terms anyway. But, you know, I just basically think, is that, did I enjoy that movie? Did I like that movie? I love that movie. Yeah, I'll get that on Blu-ray and I'll watch it over and over again. I don't care if, you know, so-and-so down the street doesn't want to see it or my next-door neighbours aren't interested in it. I'm not worried about that. 
at the end of the day, I like the movie, so I'm happy. But, you know, I'd like to see more John Carter movies. The chances of that happening now are incredibly slim. So, uh, Simon, it, I mean, it's been a disaster at the cinema. Um, nobody knows about it, but we've always got the disc release on Blu-ray and DVD, and it could be that it's a sleeper hit and, and make some of its money back and get some better word of mouth through the whole medium. Uh, isn't it, what, 60 or 70% of films make the majority of their money on the home format anyway? Um, if it makes something at the box office, it's just they class it now as a bonus. Um, so there's every chance that it will, at some stage, make its money back. I mean, uh, wasn't Waterworld the most um, over-budget film flopped completely uh, at the time? That was the, the worst. I mean, I struggle to think that John Carpenter is going to match that in terms of box office failure. But it has now made its money, you know, um, with, with TV viewings and, and Blu-ray, uh, DVD, and now Blu-ray. Well, I think it was video first, wasn't it? Video, DVD, and Blu-ray. Um, so there's every chance that John Carpenter would do it. Um, Hopefully, if they sort of do a little bit more advertising of it, if they get it on the front of a few magazines, um, you know, John Carter is, or John Carter is about, you know, on, on the front of, you know, in these, what, inch square or something on the bottom of magazines, are people looking like, oh, hang on, what's that all about? Just get it out there. Um, and it's every chance that it will. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're going to review it, and, um, well, I would think Chris will review it, and it will be uh, e- equally glowing. <laughs> we're going to remember as well, is you're going to have people now who want to see this movie because of all the... Uh, the negative hype surrounding it, oh, it's the biggest disaster of all time. Let's just see how bad it really is. They won't go to Flicks to go and see it, but they'll, they'll happily rent it or buy it on disc. And, mm. uh, and, you know, and they'll find out, hang on, I quite enjoyed that. Um, but you also bear in mind, you know, some other genre masterpieces. John Carter's not a masterpiece, but look what happened to The Thing. Look what happened to Blade Runner. Uh, massive, massively undersold, you know, at the, at the Flicks. Badly reviewed, and oh no, 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 no one was interested in these for a lot of various reasons. But on home video, groundswell gained momentum, and these became the, the, the cult classics. In fact, they've even gone beyond being cult classics, they're quite just renowned classic movies yep. um, of their genre nowadays. Won't happen to John Carter in quite the same way, but I, I would imagine there'd be a hell of a lot more appreciation for it once people just take it home and sit down and just watch it in their own time. Well, I mean, um, you missed the biggest one out there, Chris, which was uh, Shawshank. Um, yeah, yeah, a- Shawshank absolute well. flop at the cinema. Um, yet it's it's on in the top ten list of movies and uh, on IMDb and so on, or it has been in the past. So, just goes to yeah. show, you know, it, it, once your you know, audience all the critics top ten, yeah, yeah, once your audience sees the film. And, and the word of mouth goes out there, so maybe that's the issue with John Carter. I still think it's a, it was a crap name for the film. Told you nothing. I mean, is the guy a plumber? I mean, what I is would he? imagine that if you're going to put that out on disc now, you you put a subtitle on it. If I was in charge, that's what I'd do. John Carter and the Princess of Mars. And it, it, that sums up the, the flavour of what this is all about. Um, the whole, you know, it's like Flash Gordon and the, and the, and the Mud Men of Mongo. You know, it, it's exactly that sort of pulp attraction that this kind of film needs to have straight away hitting in the face with its title and uh, you're under no illusion you know indiana jones and the temple temple <laughs> i forgot what it's called indiana <laughs> jones and the base of lost ark there you go i love that one it's, it's that style of you know um cliffhanger uh, serialized you know hokey pulp fun now let, let's look at the other uh, side of the coin chris um a movie called the hunger games Again, it's one of these titles that means absolutely nothing to me. I know nothing about the background of this movie. 
Um, however, I have seen the trailers, and it looks interesting. And of course, it's been a huge hit at the box office. Yeah. Um, well, again, John Carter's based on a, a bunch of books, which you know were very popular at their time. But that was, you know, best part of a hundred years ago. Uh, Hunger Games is based on a trilogy of books. Forgot the name of the author, but it's a, it's a, it's a girl, and um, and they're aimed at teens, you know. And teen fiction now is absolutely huge, you know. Obviously, with Harry Potter and Twilight and all that sort of stuff. So this came in at the back end of all that. You, you've already got the bestsellers you know, these these books. My son's read them, devoured them, and was raving about it. So and he's eleven, and he only knew about you know this film coming out long before I did. Um, he had some pre-production, uh, well, early artwork poster on his wall. And I, I didn't know what it was. Someone from school had got that for him. Hunger Games, I'd never heard of it. Um, but you had a target market. So obviously the advertising and the, the word of mouth of all the kids at school reading these books, they knew that movie was coming out. And then when the advertising hit, you know, again, forums, networks, uh, websites, this film was already pretty huge with a massive... Uh, demographic, the very demographic that the, the studio wanted to hit. So they all went to go and see the film, and by all accounts, the film is a great translation of the first book. Very enjoyable, very controversial, um, and it's been a rip-roaring success. So it, it, it just shows you, you, you have a target audience in mind. The book's only written, well, three, three years ago, I think it was, or at least the first one was. Um, and so the movie comes out all those people who bought, who bought that book and loved it are going to go and see it. Simple. We've got bums on seats there. Massive audience uh, box office take. And, and, of course, it was advertised really well. So it hit the right people at the right time. That's PR done right. But it's also using a very, very highly known commodity with that demographic. And as you quietly said, the trailer's come out and you think, oh, well, that looks interesting. Looks a bit familiar. You know, as I'm sure Mark is going to pick up on in a minute. But, you know, there's, there's films with this sort of style before, this sort of theme. But, you know, it, it looked pretty good to me. I so, haven't seen it yet. My son has, and he, he said it's fantastic. Oh, well, so it's hitting its demographic. Uh, let's move over to Mark. Mark, this is just Battle Royale, isn't it? You could look at it like that, but as Chris already stated, it's in a lineage of various other fiction, both in, in terms of... Um, literature and films things like running man and stephen king's praise the hunger games um gladiatorial combat things like rollerball and you've got the basic premise that most people tend to pick up on is you know a group of kids forced to kill one another you're you're in that lord of the flies territory anyway the whole point is that it's adding suzanne collins who who wrote the hunger games is adding in the reality tv element now I think what a lot of uber fans of Battle Royale have picked up on is is twofold. Number one, that she claims that she'd never heard of the film, which seems slightly odd that she hadn't heard of the book or the film of Battle Royale, given that she's a, a fancy kind of sci-fi writer. But on the flip side, she's she's aiming at a completely different demographic. So you can understand that. And I think most fans of, of Battle Royale are in, in a strange way slightly proud of the fact that what they like tends to never quite hit the mainstream. Um, it's, it's all just based around um, different themes though. I mean, if you look at hunger games, it's more about society. It's, it's more about um, the future and warring States. And then it comes back to 
to a human drama, whereas Battle Royale is more about the human psyche. It's it's far more about reactions to extremes, which Japanese directors and authors tend to do very well. Um, as I say, they, they both tend to draw from the same general themes in pitting people against each other, kids against each other, but where they go from there seems to be vastly different. You know, one is, is aimed for that young adult market and the other one is brutal and, and really if you look at Battle Royale it's something that a lot of adults don't even really like watching it it's it's very nihilistic and there's not there's not a great deal of happiness to be found there even in in victory but Collins claimed that she'd never heard of it but it, it Battle Royale wasn't given a, a theatrical release in the states you've got to remember because it came out at around the time of some of the high high school shootings and so therefore I still find that a little bit hard to believe you know um, it's her, I think that's what a lot of people are, are picking her up on. It. It's less the fact that they're similar, but more the fact that she doesn't cite it as an influence. Um, Kushin Takami, who wrote Battle Royale, was happy to say all the things that you know he found interesting and all the things that he took in as influences. But the, as soon as you've got an author who claims to have magically come up with an idea to hit them whilst channel surfing and also claiming that you know, putting in Greek mythology that she's terribly into. I think sometimes authors are, are particularly American authors, are terribly scared of saying, I liked X or Y in case it's so close they get sued. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. But as you say, the lineage of this this type of movie goes back a hell of a long way. Gladiatorial arenas um, uh, mingled with, you know, like um, live TV, media coverage, which of course is rollerball, um, Death Race 2000, that sort of that sort of stuff. You know, it's it's very similar to all that kind of thing. The controversial elements, which any filmmaker or author is going to readily pick up on. You know, you're going to break a few taboos. How are we going to do this? Well, the the obvious thing is to use kids to do it. So you know, although Battle Royale was there first, and the stories are different in the way that they're handled, I and mean, we know that already, but. Um, you know, she's still exploring something which is still pretty much taboo, still pretty shocking. Battle Royale wasn't made for the teen market. It was made for, you know, a more adult sort of um, demographic. So the kids are going to see this. The kids have read the books. The kids are going to see this. And it's going to hit them with a lot, hell of a lot more relevance and shock value than it will do for people of our age, say. So, again, you know, there are differences even in the way that it's uh, going to be delivered and perceived by its, its target audience. So there's plenty of room for it, whether she saw Battle Royale or was aware of Battle Royale or not. It's kind of irrelevant, you know, when it comes down to it, because she's made a hell of a lot of money out of this now. Her books have been popular. I mean, this, the trilogy of books, I don't know how where they go afterwards. I don't know what happens, you know, how they, the characters progress, you know, survivors and what have you. But obviously they do. My son said they're fantastic. Uh, and he was gripped and he, he rip-roared through yeah, all the books and he can't wait to see more movies. So it's doing something right there, isn't it? So there we go. We got we got John Carter on the one hand, uh, which has been a, a bit of a flop because it, it hasn't hit its its target audience. Their target audience probably didn't even know it existed unless you're you're a, uh, a complete sci-fi fan and knew about uh, John Carter beforehand. And then you got the Hunger Games, which just taps into the big crowd and, and has proven to be a big hit. So that's what's happening at the cinema at the minute. We're going to move on to disc reviews next. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums podcast. So moving on to uh, disc reviews, and uh, Chris, um, it's another one. It's uh, it's another one of these films that was an absolute flop. Uh, almost took down a studio. 
um, yet it's turned out to be an all-time classic, and that's Cleopatra. Yeah, Cleopatra, um, it's, what, 1963. Uh, it was a six-hour movie, uh, cut down, thankfully, so a more manageable but still unbelievably long uh, four-hour cut. Uh, this was a film that uh, Fox pumped an unbelievable amount of money into at the time that it was being made. Unprecedented amounts of cash went into this. It took a hell of a long time to make. You had um, Elizabeth Taylor, who commanded a million uh, pounds, million dollar salary, which was absolutely unheard of at that time. It was a first, she was the first actress ever to have done so, just for one single role. Uh, they had disasters on set. They, they built a set on a minefield. They did all sorts wrong with this. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, who played Cleopatra, also had uh, an emergency tracheotomy uh, because of a severe bout of pneumonia with complications, almost died. Uh, so she was scarred as well. Um, and of course, the most famous element of all would be that she and Richard Burton, who played Mark Antony, Roman General Mark Antony, um, had a very, very highly publicised affair, which was notorious, was mentioned in the White House, was mentioned in the Vatican, um, and, you know, caused a lot of, because uh, these were, you know, massive global celebrities at the time. And um, it, it just caused a lot of, a lot of, you know, animosity towards his production. So when it came out, Again, the gargantuan length of the film. You'd had long films before. You'd had Spartacus, you know, say its name with reverence, one of the greatest films ever made. You know, you'd, you'd had the fall of the Roman Empire. You'd had a lot of these things, uh, Ben-Hare, you know, and people had loved them, loved them and flocked to see them um, because the sheer breadth, scale, scope, and sheer you know, uh, high production values and the, the opulence of, of these bygone ages being brought vividly to the screen. Um, but the problems with Cleopatra again were that it's a massively over overweighty script with very little action in it. Now you don't necessarily have to have action to, you know, to to keep people riveted the seats. I mean, the real life story of Cleopatra and her love affairs with these first of all Julius Caesar, um, and then Mark Antony, and the downfall of well, her reign in Egypt and the uh, the trouble it caused back in Rome. You know, it's it's. It is a spellbinding story, but the thing about this is, you, and I, you know, people can shoot me down in flames here, but Taylor, she's a, a fantastic screen presence, uh, undeniable screen presence, but uh, her delivery of the emotional lines in this, and a hell of a lot of them, um, fall flat to my ears. Uh, Richard Burton, again, you know, this is a guy who uh, is overly theatrical. This guy... Whatever he's doing, if he's riding a chariot, if he's riding a horse, he's doing whatever, every nuance in his face, every glimmer of his eye, every expression, every purse of the lips, it's all done for an imaginary audience of thousands in front of him. Now, to be honest, with a film like this, there were thousands in front of him, thousands of extras and a lot of cast and crew all around him. So, you know, I can give him the benefit of the doubt on this occasion, but he's just too overly dramatic and theatrical and that, that Welsh brogue, the power of his voice and the speed of the, his delivery it's just pure Shakespearean monologuing um, and you know, in part the film is based on Shakespeare's interpretation of Antony and Cleopatra but uh, the thing about it is, and I mustn't forget to mention Rex Harrison who plays Julius Caesar, the first Roman love of her life and again, you think Rex Harrison, Doctor Doolittle, you know, My Fair Lady, and all this sort of stuff. How are you going to carry off this Roman emperor? Well, surprisingly well, to be honest. Uh, again, he's very theatrical, but there's something different about his performance 
you know, far opposed from Richard Burton, which is actually, it, it's kind of gripping, again, because he's not like the guy you'd expect to see, and he's much older than Elizabeth Taylor, and the romance seems a bit implausible, but it still seems to work. It's a film of two halves. You know, you've got your two-hour bash beforehand, which is um, Cleopatra meeting Julius Caesar and going to Rome, and the assassination of Julius Caesar, and obviously Cleopatra flees back to Alexandria in Egypt, having already borne him a son, Caesarian. And, uh, and then, of course, her love affair in the second act, second much larger act, I should say, uh, with um, Mark Antony, and the downfall that that causes. But it's all done in, you know, great big palaces, massive antechambers. There's gold, there's marble, there's, you know, embroideries and tapestries. And, you know, it's, it's one of the most opulent, extravagant, lavish films you're ever going to see. Um, it reaches Blu-ray um, via Fox. Uh, it's only only a UK release so far, but it's a, a multi-region release, and um, it, it looks truly astonishingly good. Um, it's it's shot. It's another thing as well as a million-dollar uh, paycheck. Her late husband, I think his name Michael Todd, who created the Todd AO system, she demanded the film be filmed like that. So you had obviously it was Taylor made the 70 millimeter road shows. So this version on Blu-ray comes out with a rather majestic uh, 2.2 out to 1 uh, ratio and uh, it looks unbelievably good. This is a film that you genuinely think you can step into and explore those sets yourself and go treasure-seeking treasure <laughs> treasure around these chambers and palaces and temples and things. Uh, DNR, Fox are renowned for a bit of DNR. They've done it to bits on the likes of uh, The Longest Day and Patton. But... Um, I would say there's one instance of, of DNR on this. The rest of the time, you have uh, a very thin veneer of grain, but the detail, the texture is very definitely there. But the scene where, very early on, where Julius Caesar and his entourage arrive for the first time at Alexandria to meet, uh, well, Cleopatra's in hiding at the time, but you don't know why and you don't know what's going on. But as they arrive at the steps of uh, Alexandria, uh, it looks definitely DNR to me, and I thought, oh, here we go, it's dropped the ball here. But it doesn't last long, and pretty soon after that, you know, the rest of the three hours and 59 minutes of it are, you know, are gorgeous. The colours leap off the screen at you. Uh, it was coloured by Deluxe at the time, and uh, I've since heard that the, the, the yellows are muted and sort of downgraded on this, on this print. But, uh, you know, to my eyes, it still looks bloody good. Uh, the primary is really... Uh, you know, leap out at you. Um, I would say the exteriors, particularly the ones in Rome, look a bit more overcast, a bit more dour. But that could well be the weather. I don't know. I never saw this on the screens initially. And in fact, to be honest, it's a film I've I've quite stayed clear of. I love my historical, you know, epics. You know, obviously Gladiator of the, of the modern realm. But your Ben Hairs, your Ten Commandments, uh, and especially Spartacus. Uh, so, which still we still await the great proper Blu-ray release of Spartacus, don't we? Um, but this, you know, this looks astonishing. Um, Sound-wise, it's don't expect any subwoofer action. A, you know, and don't expect totally immersive wraparound stuff. Obviously, the 70 mil version had a, it had six six channels, uh, which is more than sort of approximated by the, the DTS 5.1 track that we get here. The 35 mil versions only had uh, four track stereo. But you've got a Dolby four-track on this, which you know 
again, it's an approximation of that. Uh, it sounds pretty good. Alex, one of the best elements of this movie, beyond any shadow of a doubt, is Alex North's gorgeous, gorgeous score. An absolute time on a classic. This guy had done Spartacus only a few years before, and it, they do sound very similar. It uses, it uses some of the same themes, obviously reorchestrated in different instruments coming in there, but it, it's of the same ilk without a doubt, the two blend together. And another major point about Alex, Alex North's score is that when they cut down this film, largely to eliminate a lot of Richard Burton's material, because, you know, he's not the best. Uh, if you like his style, you're going to love this. But if you don't, oh, it, it can be quite a chore to sit through. Um, so a lot of his stuff was lost in that two hours that was taken out. And obviously, something ha- and it, the film is quite jarring because of that. There's some narrative shifts, which you can't help but notice. But smoothing over all of this is, is North's gorgeous score, which does a hell of a lot to keep the sort of flow and the feel and the ambience of the story alive. Uh, of what is a very talky story. You've got two battles in there, a battle outside the uh, the gates of Alexandria, which is, it's okay. It's all right. It's no, no great shakes. Um, and then you've got a, what is meant to be the great big sea battle, which, um, you know, is the the, the, ter- the turning of the tide, ironically, uh, for Mark Antony. Uh, and it's rubbish. <laughs> Back at the, um, the on, on, on the Queen of the Niles ship, the sort of... Uh, the headquarters ship. They have a big chessboard of all little, you know, tiny um, ship models, and they're moving them across the board, very akin to the old, uh, you know, World War Two style, with the planes on a big board and all this. And they're setting fire to various ones as these ships go up in flames. But you don't really see much of that as it's see for real. So the more interesting bit is actually on this chessboard. So, so Chris, um, just very quickly, overall, uh, is is it the type of film that's going to find a new audience on Blu-ray? I mean, it's it's definitely in in the old-fashioned theatrical way of of, of introducing a a story to an audience. It, it it tended to be around about that period, so from the fifties into the the late sixties, where we had these big epic films uh, that ran over. Yeah, so many reels and and even nowadays on some disc releases you have to change the disc uh, for the second I, part. You do the, on this <laughs> for the second part of the movie. So, is it going to find a, a, an audience, a new audience nowadays, or do you think it's it, it's there for film historians or film fans um, in particular to pick up? Definitely one for film historians. Um, and reading around the forums and that already a lot of people who've seen it remember it when it first came out. Some people even saw the six-hour cut. Uh, you know, really impressed by this disc uh this release um but i would love to think that even though i've got misgivings about the film in general if you love the big time old epics this is certainly worth having a look at uh the acting from some people is great but the and and not so great from others but it's certainly stylized but you know it's just the feel of the film you know you, you you are going back to ancient egypt you're going back to ancient rome and there's a lot of fun to be had from that, regardless of how overly wordy it is. Uh, so I'd like to think that people could discover this. Again, people tend to like seeing these old movies and how they've been transferred. A lot, people are getting more savvy to what you know, Blu-ray can do, especially when it comes to you know, the older movies, because they know these films have been shown a hell of a lot and the prints are all worn out. They know about DNR, they know about uh, the tricks, some of the tricks of the trade to try and restore these films. So there's a bit of an interest that even people who aren't specifically, you know, after the big epic, um, obviously biblical, but historical, um, you know, stories. So I'd like to think people could 
come to this with fresh eyes and think, oh yeah, this is what a this is what almost sank Fox. <laughs> Uh, John Carter is great compared to this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Mark, uh, moving on to you, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen Cleopatra before, but it, it, a have you seen it? And if you haven't seen it, um, is it the type of film that you would actually go out and and hunt out just to see it? Um, I haven't seen it, and I'm afraid it's not really the kind of thing that I'd go out to hunt to find. It's, I think, it's, that type of film is an acquired taste. I think you either revel in the the grandiose nature of it all and, and the large sets and the, the big vistas and the like and, and just marvel at how they built entire towns or you, you find it just a little bit, I don't know, perhaps sterile is the, is the wrong word, but there seems to be a certain grandness that, that takes away from an intimate atmosphere. You know, the, the smaller scenes sometimes I think lack because there's this constant want to show off the grand scale. And so it's just not really generally to my tastes. That, that, that's a very good point there about the intimacy of it. Um, it it's a massive, massive story you know, spanning quite a bit of time and certainly two, two major civilizations. Um, but it's, it's condensed down emotionally into a very intimate portrayal of, you know, a love triangle, three people and the love affair that, that these two guys have with this one very, very powerful woman and the doom that it brings to them and, you know, everybody around them. But again, instead of concentrating on that correctly, this power play, this intimate power play is played out in these massive rooms, these massive chambers. Uh, outside, there are literally thousands of extras. So the intimacy is kind of dwarfed by the sheer scale so it kind of defeats the object a little bit. Uh, it's a great idea to have. And it would have worked if you'd had more actual action taking place as well. That's a personal viewpoint, I know. But uh, it would have something to break the tedium. <laughs> Simon, it, uh, again, uh, same sort of question that I've asked Mark there. I mean, uh, I mean personally, I've, I haven't seen the film. Um, and it's not something that's that's attracted me in any sort of way. I mean, I, I, I'm one of these people that like the historic classics, and um, if it's something that interests me, I'll go and try it out and and see see what I think. But I've never really had an interest in this. What about you? Um, funnily enough, not really. No, I mean, I've seen and loved Ben Hur. Um, I've seen and loved Spartacus, but. This one, I don't know whether or not it's a combination of um, Burton and uh, Taylor together on screen. I mean, as a couple, they were on and off all the time. And it seems that their chemistry and, and the few clips that I've seen on, you know, when you see these things on the television, you know, greatest films ever made, or whatever, they generally show various clips through. And this is one that is generally trotted out. Um, they don't tend, to, or at least to me, have any great chemistry between themselves, which is very, very ironic, considering that they had this um, affair were married what four or five times i don 't know very very strange couple they were well they began the relationship whilst making this movie, and yeah, you're dead well, right there is no chemistry between them yeah but that, that that could be down to the fact that Taylor is not a good actress, and <laughs> Burton is just too highly theatrical that he can 't let himself go. Well, does let dead right. There's, there's nothing there. There's no click. Yeah. So um, that and and the time aspect of it, you know, it's who, who's got four hours to sit around and watch a film apart from us reviewers. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's another thing that, that puts me off. But and, anyway, going back to Chris, just for a final wrap-up on this one, um, you said the disc looks pretty good, given given the, the, the uh, restoration that's been done. How would you yeah. score it? Uh, ooh, I'd give it... Well, you know, just for the sheer breadth of it and the uh, the level of detail that goes into it, I mean, you, you can look as far back as the you know the furthest extra, and you're going to see, apart from a couple of scenes where they look a bit blurry, you're going to see good detail. So I'm going to I'm going to go for a nine, nine out of ten for this. And as a movie, <sighs> six, six. <laughs> there we uh, go. See, but the thing is, though, before, before we, we round off on that, um, if you have any interest in how these movies get made and what the hell happens to them, why things like this got greenlit and the trouble that he caused, there is one of the best documentaries that, that I've seen, uh, a two-hour documentary, and it's called, uh, what is it called again? Cleopatra, the film that changed Hollywood. It's been shown before. It was on the 2001 DVD release of it, or 2003. Um, so it's it's been seen before, but it is one of the best. And whether you, you like the film or not, this will disperse some of the myths and probably create a whole new set of questions because it, it just goes warts and all. And it's brilliant, a brilliant, you know, totally comprehensive documentary. Probably worth it for that if you don't watch the movie. So. Well, you, well, you see, personally, that holds more interest for me as, as yeah. a film fan uh, than the actual movie does. Because it, it shows you what goes on, how these things happen, and this was like this was the silver age of cinema. Now, the studio studios were still heavily in power, but they could be sunk by the super egos of the people who were, you know, on the other side of the camera, which is obviously in this case Taylor and Burton, uh, who just uh, their, their super egos went spiraled out of control, and they couldn't keep up with them. But they had to because the film just they couldn't allow the film to just end, you know, just wrap it up. In the process, other films that were getting made around it had to be shut down to keep feeding this one. So it, it shows the, the, the ridiculousness of, uh, of, of Hollywood at, at its height of, um, you know, lunacy. Yep, In, interesting stuff. So we're, we're going to move uh, from Cleopatra, which is uh, now termed a classic, and onto a movie which I think, um, given all the good uh, critic reports and, and viewing reports and review reports, I think it's going to be a future classic. Um, it also did extremely well at the Oscars. It's a technical piece of brilliance, uh, and I think most people in most quarters are saying that. So, Simon, tell us all about Hugo. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, I've had the, uh, the the pleasure of viewing this. Um, this is the UK disc from uh, Entertainment and Video, and I viewed the the uh, and reported upon the the 3D version of the film. And uh, I'll just take one of the lines here from the written review. Here, we have a new contender for the best 3D picture, and its name is Hugo. And I will stand by that. The 3D in this particular film is utterly, utterly astonishing. What Scorsese has done, he's taken the negative parallax and the positive parallax and put them together in an immersive experience that you just live within the film it is brilliant um i think steve wrote on on the forum uh, best 3d ever um in the style of comic book guy and clearly it is um avatar was great films like cars 2 fabulous 3d um toy story 2 fabulous 3d um this is something else. It's a live-action film. You cannot see the joints between the CG, um, and it is utterly stunning. Um, the, the, the beginning fly-through of the, from the um, overlooking Paris that goes down through the station, um, 
along the platform right up to the to the clock face and through the clock face you've got Hugo there looking out breathtaking 3D absolutely I mean I can throw adjectives at this <laughs> film all night it is utterly utterly brilliant and what makes it so good is that the film itself is very very entertaining um, I, I, I don't really want to say too much about it because I know you haven't seen it Phil I know you haven't seen it Mark and if, if you start talking about it I'm going to give away too much I saw this film completely blind I had no idea what it was about I mean you know trying to blink myself away from, from the Oscars I saw it after the Oscars I knew it had won um, various um, awards um, but I tried not to you know what it was I knew we didn't win best picture but that doesn't matter I knew it was going to be great and I didn't know what didn't want to know about the story because I wanted to see it as blind as I possibly could and I was absolutely enthralled from beginning to end now I know Chris you have got an almost polar opposite view of this and perhaps you're coming in a minute um and I can see you, you you've got some valid points when you say that it's it's almost made by committee for uh, the award ceremony there are elements in there um but over and above this it's a film about film and it uses the latest technology to tell the story of the earliest technology of the film. I think the synergy of the whole thing and the symmetry of the whole thing is just brilliant. And I love it. I really love it. The picture makes it, the sound, a little bit baseline, I'll get that out of the way first of all, but the dynamic sound from left, right, back, front, the clock's ticking at the beginning from all over the place. All the way through the steam trains, from the dogs barking to the noise you get on the station platform, to the, the, the little automaton clicking away there. Brilliant. You think you're there. So as well as being visually within the film, the sound you're within, the, it's just astonishing. And I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, yeah. Simon, technically, I'd, I'd agree with everything you said there because uh, it looks and sounds just truly majestic. 7.1 is truly glorious, uh, the detail all around you. Yeah, fabulous on that, on that score. Um, it's purely, for me, uh, I understood exactly what the movie was trying to do. Not a problem with that. I understand the end. Great point about the 3D. Now, bear in mind, I, I wasn't discussing the 3D side of it. My opinions are slightly different overall when it comes to the 3D because... It is a much better experience, and I do totally appreciate the fact that he's going back to the start of cinema, the dawn of cinema, the primitive technology used then, and embracing it with the cutting edge of today's technology. Yep, I have no problem with that at all. My problem with that really, problem really is the story itself, and that is, I, I, and again, it's personal, isn't it? I couldn't mm -hmm. connect with it at all. I didn't, I wasn't moved by the kids, I wasn't moved by the search for you know, George Melee, uh, or Melly, however you pronounce it. And, um, you know, it, and I thought that the comedy aspect of it didn't work, you know, with Sasha Baron Cohen, a guy that I actually think is superb at character actors. Uh, and great when you see a character actor, a, a, a comedy performer, an absurdist, you know, OTT comedy performer, turn serious. And there were little moments here where he could well have done that. But I found that every single time he came on screen, it was a, a duff note. Uh, the Peter Cook style voice, which is more like Boise from um, Only Fools and Horses, just fell, fell foul for me completely every time. And I was removed from the movie. Um, Hugo's plight, again, you know, the fantasy element. No, I, I personally wasn't gripped at all. I knew exactly where it was going to go, which is a problem I've had with Scorsese's you know, previous two movies uh, behind this. 
I knew exactly what was going to happen and it was just I wasn't enthralled in the least there's loads of magic in this movie there's loads of moments which you know work but overall I was deflated and found that I didn't actually care um, either way what happened <laughs> to anybody and, you know, and, and I feel a little bit horrible saying that because this is the sort of film that I would really normally have totally embraced I love cinema, I love the vintage movies, I love appreciation of vintage movies. To me, this felt like, um, it felt very private, it felt like Scott, this was Scorsese's Valentine, this has been said before by better writers than me, um, it, it is Valentine to the birth of cinema. And it felt very private, and I felt a bit like I was intruding on watching this, like it really wasn't done for, for me and for audiences, it was done from his heart. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. And I really do envy yourself and everyone else, which is the majority, who fell in love with the film and were entranced by it. I really wish that had happened to me. And I feel kind of horrible for like, you know, my cold you know, response to it. But that's the way it left me, you know. Well, that's the beautiful nature of film, isn't it? Mm. That's just great that uh, you and I can be friends and discuss a film that has, we've got polar opposites against. It's brilliant. Anyway, I hate what I want to be in high school because we've got to do this podcast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, what what I wanted to bring What I wanted to bring up was uh, something that's only just come to light recently. When I review um, uh, the 3D discs, I only ever really look at the 3D picture because that's what um, the discs are about. You know, I'm reviewing 3D on the disc. Um, you looked at the American 2D version yep. of this film, yeah? Yeah, Now, that's right. it's come to light um, on the forums, and I checked it today, um, yeah, I can say, I checked it today, um, that the 2D version of this film, this disc has the, the 3D and the 2D on the same disc, unlike the American release, which has got two separate discs for the 3D and the 2D. Now, it's very, very common for 3D discs to have what are called floating black bars on the left and the right of the frame. Um, right. A lot of the Disney ones will have it. And what it, what it does, at the very, very edge of the frame, the, the, uh, the, the, the picture can get very um, disorientating and it can be you know, quite problematic to see. So, it, so, so where, the, where these edges sort of cross, the makers or distributors or whomever black them off with what I call floating black bars. Now, sometimes these bars move, sometimes they don't, depending on the, the sort of parallax that you get within, within the frame. Um, the, the, the UK disc here has got static black bars on the left and the right. And of course, because it's 1.5 to 1, you've got them at the top and bottom. So when you're looking in 3D, you've got this sort of frame within your bezel, if you like. Yeah. Now, it transpires that the UK version the 2D version of the film has got these same bars. They haven't opened up the frame. They've kept the left and the right. So what you've got is, is essentially a, a black box within a black box before you see the film. Um, and I just wondered if that was the case with the US disc. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Well, that's, no. that's a nice short answer, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's, it's not. Um, Obviously, at the time of this recording, I, I haven't seen the film for, I think, ooh, a few weeks. But, I mean, no, I, I don't recall anything like that at all. The picture was pretty much gobsmacking. Mm. Detail was awesome. Um, it, it, this is the 2D one, obviously. Uh, yeah. But detail and depth, even for a 2D, was just truly, truly um, incredible to look at. A beautiful image to behold. 
and I didn't see anything like that that I can recall. Mm. Um, so, but then again, the, the American one, as you quite rightly said, did not have the 3D version on it as well. So whether some kind of crazy um, authoring screw up has occurred, um, I, I don't know. I, I can't comment. But I've not looked at the UK disc. It's well, given it's uh, entertainment and video. <laughs> well, uh, who is are, it them just shortchanging the I UK think, disc? I think it's just a, an authoring issue. If they put, you know, the the easiest way for them to do it is just to take left eye only for the two 2D version. Which sounds like that's what they've done, because because every three D disc is is also uh, compatible two D. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you watch it in two D, then all it does is it takes the I, it, I think it's the left eye, um, and it just uses the left eye for the two D version. That's what it sounds like on this disc, and it sounds like that they've done that, but it's, it's kept the black bars in. Mad. Oops. I mean, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, it it's, it's not doesn't shrink the picture by much. And I can fully understand people who, who feel shortchanged by the fact that they haven't got the, the full pixel-to-pixel ratio, that, you know, it doesn't go to the edge of the screen. And it just seems, well, I mean, it's, it's not a deal-breaker. Well, I guess it is for some so, people. So, I mean, we're not talking like a recall of this disc, then? I don't think so, no, because it's entertaining video. This is how the disc is. You know, if you want to have it from to the edge of the frame, why, I don't know, I mean, on, on, on the Curo, it was, what, a centimetre each side? of a 50-inch, so you're not losing right. a, a massive amount of picture. But, you know, if, if you want it's, the full... Well, it doesn't hide the fact that it still shouldn't be there. Well, exactly, you know, and it, and it just means that, that you know, if, if you want that, you're going to have to get the, the, uh, the US version. Or the power of the internet and uh, lots of people write into EIV and complain, then they'll have Absolutely. no choice. <laughs> uh, but well, anyway. you just had um, a very similar thing with Dracula, Prince of Darkness from um, the Hammers movie from Studio Canal because they um, and I, this is an audio glitch on it quite widely reported after I reviewed it and didn't spot it Ta-da! I hold my hands up oops a daisy um, but for me it was the kind of film where and I watch a lot of you know foreign muck <laughs> I watch a lot of t- dub stuff you know westerns horror movies you know Italian stuff so it's and films from that era I know we've gone off topic here a little bit but um, feel free to cut all this out if you so desire but um, I didn't notice it because it didn't look that unusual or sound that unusual to me to have these voices dislocated from someone's mouth a lot of Hammer movies from that period suffered because you know, the voices were put on afterwards and the, the way the sound was mixed together they did sound slightly artificial anyway so it, but, you know, I still should have spotted it but uh, at least they've done a decent thing and they've they're doing a replacement disc and I think they'd be called uh, the other ones and putting new ones out I'm yep. not sure they're actually out at the time of this recording but you know, they're working towards it also the DNR they promised wouldn't be there well it was and they've, they've said they're going to try and look into that as well for future releases so at least you know they're listening to what the fans want yeah uh, yeah. it's it's interesting that you say that Chris because I understand that Mark does that with all his films because he's used to Asian dubs he deliberately puts it is that right Mark? <laughs> yeah Yes, that's right, Phil. <laughs> Mark doesn't even talk properly. He, his reply was two minutes ago. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're getting completely sidetracked. We're also running very quickly out of time. Um, so for Hugo, uh, Simon, what were your scores? And then Chris, what were your scores? Um, picture was 10, sound was 9, extras to 5. There's not a great deal of extras on it. They're okay. And overall, I gave it an 8. Uh, what did I do? I gave the picture a ten. I gave the sound a nine. Because uh, I don't know, Mark, did you did you agree that the um, 
the, the, the sub buff action didn't appear to be as grand as maybe it should have been. Yeah, it was it was a little bit light. It could have been a bit heavier, but it wasn't really that type of film, you know. Um, but the, the surround was so good, you know. I I couldn't. Not... I know, I, I'm basically just nitpicking because yeah. you know, otherwise it was truly astonishingly good. Um, extras wise, I gave it a five. Yeah, that's not a great deal there. Film wise, I you know I broke the mold and gave it a six. Uh, boo hiss, boo hiss on me. It's because you didn't like John Carter. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so that's what you get. That's what you get, Scorsese. Let's All face right. it, in about 15 years' time, you might go back and restore John Carter. <laughs> well, sadly, we've run out of time on the podcast tonight, so uh, my thanks to Chris, Mark, and Simon. Thanks very much, guys. Yes, Thank sir. you. Cheers, Phil. Don't forget, uh, we have podcasts every week of the month. On the 7th is the Movies Podcast, which you're listening to. Uh, on the 14th is the Games Podcast. 21st, the Home Cinema Podcast. And on the 28th of most months is the Podcast Extra, where we go over everything that's happening on the forums. You also notice that there is a new design now on the forums. Uh, that's been updated, and that's because we're at the Gadget Show live all of next week. So when this podcast goes out on the 7th, it's from the 10th to the 15th, the Gadget Show. If you're going, come along, say hello. Uh, lots of the review team are going to be there. And uh, just to wrap up, we also have a, a couple of competitions in line uh, with what we're doing at the Gadget Show. You can win an Oppo BD player. Uh, you can win a USB or Apple docking system, uh, audio system from Samsung. And the big one, we're giving away the flagship Panasonic VT50 3D Plasma TV. It's the first TV in three years that's been given a reference status award by AV Forums. And there's one to give away. So everybody that registered as a member on the forums during April will automatically be entered into those competitions. And if you're already a member, if you go to the competitions page and just click that you would like to be entered and you shall be and some lucky person is going to win those prizes. So that's it for the Movies Podcast this month. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.